On April 25, 2014, residents of Flint, Michigan awoke to an unpleasant surprise. What was normally usual, colorless, odorless drinking water was now replaced with much harder, yellow-orangish, odorous water. While the Flint water crisis has received widespread national attention, it is merely one case out of a plethora of examples of an increasingly relevant concept, environmental racism and inequalities. Welcome to the 411, where you get the rundown to keep you on top of things going on in the world. We are your hosts, Sartak, Tanvir, and Sarah. And today we begin Volume 2, Sustainable Development, and we're going to discuss this increasingly relevant phenomenon, how environmental impacts vary based on inequalities in race, income, and social status. We'll start by discussing the definitions and general concepts relevant to environmental racism and environmental inequalities, and then we'll look at a case of environmental racism and discuss more broadly patterns seen in in environmental racism. From there, we'll see two cases of climate poverty and how climate change disproportionately affects poorer individuals, and then finally we'll end on hopefully a more optimistic note, examining and discussing possible venues for action and policy changes. So to begin, let's look at the definitions of environmental racism and climate poverty, as well as associated concepts in this realm of environmental inequality. So the definition of environmental racism is how injustices and detrimental effects in the environment, both natural and human-influenced, disproportionately affect certain already marginalized or oppressed racial or ethnic groups. Climate poverty, on the other hand, is more so the concept that anthropogenic climate change, that is, the man-made effects on the planet, affects certain communities, particularly poorer and impoverished communities and countries, at a much greater scale. And while these two definitions look more specifically at two conditions, race and economic status, and stratify based on either environmental impacts or climate change, there's actually a very complex and nuanced interplay between many factors like race, gender, socioeconomic status, geographic status, and how they're all affected by environmental issues. So first, we'll turn to environmental racism, wherein based on race, environmental factors greater affect certain populations. This phenomenon is seen globally, but can particularly be seen in the U.S., Before we move into the case study looking at environmental racism, I want to re-emphasize the importance of this topic. Traditionally, racism has been seen as an issue within political, social, and increasingly economic spheres. You know, traditionally, when you think of systems that perpetuate racism, I'm sure that's, you know, what you think of. You don't think of the environment. We think somehow that racism exists primarily in government or justice systems or policing systems. And while obviously those injustices 100% exist, there's also this race barrier that exists within environmental systems and it's increasingly important determinant also within health systems. The way urban and natural environmental systems are laid out lead to negative effects that have now been documented to be more greatly affecting communities of color. And that's where the case of the Flint water crisis, what I referenced in the introduction, takes place. So I want to kind of begin by asking, I know Flint was definitely in the news a lot, so Sarah and Tanvir, what do you already know about the Flint water crisis? Not a lot, because I know that they had water quality issues and that um like obviously there was a lot of social media attention on that um but i don't think there was ever like a determined solution Mm -hmm. or at least i never saw one so like that's all i really know and i think the fact that like it was so big in the media and you've just been seeing it since 2014 like people have kind of become like desensitized to it where they see it and they're just like oh yeah we know flint doesn't have clean water but like 
that's not a, yeah. yeah like that's a problem it's just we recognize that it's a problem and like it's like society has moved on from that when yeah. that's still a big problem for sure so we're gonna look at how flint more specifically is actually an example of environmental racism and kind of look at how the media has examined it and all of that as well so flint michigan just to give some context is a predominantly african-american city around 56 percent of the population is african-american in contrast to the national and state averages which are at about 12 and 14 percent respectively it's traditionally received its water from a Detroit water source, this is prior to 2014, which was by far cleaner and contained far less hard minerals and contaminants. It's important to note that the racial demographics in metropolitan Detroit, where the Detroit water goes to, are very different from Flint, with about 70% of the population being white and just around 20% being African American. On April 25th, 2014, as I mentioned, the water source was changed in response to tax cuts and other fiscal measures. State authorities chose not to treat the water, which is usually done to avoid corrosion in transport pipes, instead offering residents the information that their water was safe, and if there was an issue to arise, that they would look into it afterwards. Soon thereafter, residents began to complain about water quality, taste, and color, and a mere few months later, authorities told residents that they should boil their water in regards to the presence of E. coli. Some major corporations, such as General Motors, which are based in the area, decided to switch water sources, but of course, this is not always an option for residents, um, particularly in Flint, who are often socioeconomically disadvantaged. What occurred after this was a long, drawn-out scientific, legal, and political battle over the state of the water and the community as a whole. Repeated denials from Flint authorities about the water quality and then numerous scientific studies from various academic institutions rebuffing that led to an eventual national outcry and eventual further investigations into the water. And this is kind of where the media comes in. I know um, there was a young girl who was known as Little Miss Flint or Mary Coppany, and she was known to be an advocate because particularly um, from her young age, like she was influenced by that water quality. And so she was an advocate surrounding it. Um, as of now, there's actually been a legal verdict that um, the you know members of Flint, the residents, have had um, like a repayment of damages, which are now apparently equal to about $800 million. But as we see it, this is still taking time and the residents of Flint continue to use contaminated water more than six years after the initial fact. So now you may ask, kind of looking at that, a, how is this a racial issue? And B, how is this a you know water source, like an environmental issue? You know, it's like humans are kind of, they're just choosing where the water comes from. How does that factor into an environment? So first to kind of look at why this is a racial issue more specifically, it has to do with the obvious differences in racial demographics between Flint and then say Metro Detroit or Grand Rapids or Ann Arbor, which are all predominantly white communities in Michigan who receive normal water sources in contrast to Flint, which is a predominantly African-American community, which was subject to such disastrous water quality. And now this kind of gets into the part where we talk about um, tax cuts, which were the initial problem of the system. So you can say, oh, this was just an issue because, you know, they cut taxes. This happens all the time in government. It's a very normal thing. But increasingly across the United States, communities with predominantly people of color, indigenous peoples or African-Americans see lower revenue for public resources, including schools, and also importantly, water and sanitation resources, as well as often see decreased air quality and increased pollution within their spaces. And this often has to do with the socioeconomic barriers faced by these groups. So if you think about it, 
if these groups already have lowered incomes, that means there's less tax revenue, which means that there's going to be tax cuts, which lead to environmental deficits. So I know we've talked before about how there's also a lot of disparity within school systems, how predominantly like white wealthy communities get really nice schools in the US or like even in Canada and different places in the world um, versus, you know, communities of color and typically less wealthy communities don't. But that's actually a problem even within environmental resources like water and like air quality. So it's well. like proportional to their income because of the fact that it's based on tax revenue yeah and it's districted so i know like we can speak to or i can speak to at least like how it works in calgary the way um revenue is it's still based on property tax so obviously areas with wealthier people and wealthier homes are going to have greater tax revenue but generally the splitting of tax revenue is not based on districts or wards like it goes into a pool that then is used for the whole city um and so and a lot of our water source really comes from the same place so there's not that much of a disparity here but in a lot of places particularly in the u.s more specifically there is very like focused and centralized like districts or wards where they actually you know they have different tax rates and then they'll have different tax usage policies and all that and so that can influence at the end of the day how much you know water quality or the source that they get and i mean in this case it's a whole city but even within certain cities there can be different districts that are more or less of a certain race and then that usually will impact or influence the economic conditions of the area and then by extension water quality as well sometimes because in this case the big issue was they couldn't afford um, the Detroit water and so they had to switch to um, a different source which they'd also didn't have enough money to then clean which caused the other issues so it's available to them they're just like not granted access to it yeah like economically they can't access that and a big part of that leads to how this is connected to a lot of other socioeconomic barriers and factors because these communities are already at a disadvantage and then now when you're factoring in which i'll talk about in a second like all the detrimental effects that happen because the water you're furthering that disadvantage it's a cycle cycle for sure yeah i think that's crazy because water itself is like a basic resource as mm. we see it and like the fact that you would think okay sure they switched water sources but isn't there a certain standard of quality that they have to maintain even if they're using this new water source in flint or wherever like this new water is coming from like doesn't it have to don't have to make sure like there's no lead there's no e coli like no, I know. you would think especially because those are like deadly like chemicals and substances like you wouldn't need you wouldn't want that in your water because that causes like that, huge like, issues clean water is available to people like in that country in exactly. that same state and like no i know and especially allowed. this is the united states like this yeah. is considered one of the most like scientifically accurate you know prosperous countries in the world and we're still seeing this happen there is like insane to me mm-hmm. um and so now more so to kind of answer the second question like why water is such an important resource and why it constitutes an environmental issue and i'll kind of talk about how this is negatively impacted the community we have to look at the overall ecosystem that these individuals live in so housing housing sorry the neighborhood where people live water and air quality they all make up what we consider an urban environment so in this case the residents of flynn that was their urban environment um when we look at that drastically altering one of these factors can actually so in this case water can shift the urban environment and it can have detrimental outcomes. Some of these outcomes, particularly having high concentrations of lead within the water due to the lack of protection that they had, include irreversible brain damage with infants, can act as almost a lethal poison, or even contribute to as a carcinogen to possible cancer morbidity. And there was in fact a 58% increase in fetal death and an overall increased infant mortality rate that equal to a lot of um, like non even US states, but other countries altogether that have much worse off in a sense health systems. And when it come back, comes back to like income, um, 
like healthcare is not cheap in the U.S. either. Exactly. So, so you're paying for that too. If they're paying for dirty water, essentially, and then causing like serious health effects, and then they're having to pay, pay for healthcare. Yeah. No, it's crazy. And then kind of to think about that, like those are just physical health outcomes. You're now looking at mental health outcomes mm-hmm. as well, because obviously, as you mentioned, payment. I mean, could you just imagine like getting up every day and like the water you see is literally like orange yellow? You're like unsure if it's yeah, gonna like, cause. Yeah, like I've seen pictures and it you. looks terrifying no like, i know absolutely terrifying and i think that's what's crazy is that there's like an emotional toll i mean imagine also like losing a kid due to this or like mm-hmm. the amount of miscarriages are really high because of like the quality of the water and so that creates like a whole communal feeling and like just generally negative mental health outcomes which is something they can't even really factor in financially speaking like how do you try to account for somebody yeah. losing their kid in a financial that's what i'm saying like disclosure you okay know? sure like you sue but like how do you get settlements and like how does that make up for the damage that it's cause like it doesn't no exactly and so that's where it gets really difficult and that's where we see these issues hopefully um moving towards like at the root source cause of the problems we can resolve them because it is very difficult as like a restorative measure to try and fix these issues but obviously flint as i mentioned is not the only example of environmental racism in the u.s or even globally with instances such as cancer alley which is a predominantly african-american 85 mile stretch of towns in louisiana with a 50-fold increased chance of cancer so these people have a 50 times higher risk of cancer than other people in the U.S. Um, and or Pahokee, which is a predominantly African American town in Florida, with highly increased rates of asthma and respiratory disease due to due to the high presence of soot and pollutants. Or even in Canada, with water quality within First Nations communities, wherein according to um, a, a group that looks at First Nations water quality, at any given moment in time, there are over a hundred health advisories of water quality within these communities. That's at any moment in time, which to me is insane because that means like that really emphasizes how much um, environmental racism is entrenched within our societies. Now, these cycles of environmental racism exist and continue due to the overall disregard of well-being of BIPOC communities, seen with the ongoing dumping of waste materials in or near these communities or the creation of industrial facilities with toxic waste near BIPOC areas. As well, disproportionately, people of color often face socioeconomic barriers, as we discussed, which hinder them from being able to live within the most optimal environment, whether it be in terms of road safety or air quality or sanitation practice. And lastly, employment taken up by BIPOC individuals often faces greater health duress as well. So including, you know, working in uh, factories with hazardous materials. So that all like adds an environmental strain. And if you think about it, like if you have to live close to where you work because you can't afford transportation, Mm -hmm. then you're adding all the environmental pollutants from that. And it just kind of builds up further. And as we mentioned, the cycle and then it's all interconnected as Mm -hmm. well. Yeah. So that's kind of looking at environmental racism. As I mentioned, though, it is a global thing. So I talk North America specifically, but it happens everywhere. Another really important issue is climate poverty, which is a relatively newer term, but it deals with how climate change is affecting poorer communities or countries to a much greater extent. I think we often think of climate change as like a very universal thing. You know, everyone is, it's irreversible. It's going to hurt everyone or, um, you know, we only have so long on the planet and then everything is going to be bad. And though that's true, you know, it is universal in a sense, um, the Uh, There are still differences in how much climate change impacts certain groups of people, particularly economically disadvantaged communities. So we'll look at two broader examples of why climate change affects these communities more. Um, And the first one is that impoverished people are more influenced by climate change because of the increased problem of how climate change affects the practices of agriculture, farming and fishing. 
So three quarters of the people who are impoverished, particularly those who live in developing countries, depend on these industries, so mainly agriculture and food production, for their livelihood. And with new unpredictable climate patterns, decreasing arable land, and poorer air quality and water for growing seasons, they all result in poorer yields and eventual econ lower economic outcomes for these impoverished communities. In fact, nations like Timor-Leste face increasingly dire circumstances because nearly all members of their population are involved within some sphere of agriculture or fishing practice and these are all being inextricably changed because of the way climate change is impacting their communities. Mm -hmm. So like their primary source of income and like livelihood is being impacted just by climate change. Yeah, and if you think about it also, it's like the only way then they can try to move out of this like economic hardship is that if they had more money to resolve the problem, yeah. but their only source of income is then being negated, which then once again, like we talk a lot about cycles, but it kind of just leaves them there with no way to, you know, to move up or move out of it. Um, That's a huge thing in a lot of places because like farmers all already have a really variable source of income like they're it's not going to be steady like usually um their income is a lot higher in the months that they're harvesting yeah. but if they need to pay for things in other months and then all of a sudden like that money itself that they're getting at the end of the year is now like not even coming in because of like something like water or because of the amount of land that they have available or like whatever that might be then that's really concerning because mm -hmm. that's well. their primary source of income yeah so. and it also comes back to like how established like their company is you know like if they have access yeah. to machinery and like all this mm -hmm. sort of things that can like help them with their yield and everything yeah but definitely like developing countries a lot of farmers don't have those resources yeah. and so when you know the the harvest cycle is changing because the climate is changing so much they're suddenly left kind of stranded without enough information about any of it and that can really cause a lot of issues. Another major issue is also the imbalance of climate change on the nations of the world. So according to the UNDP, 99% of the effects of climate change are experienced by developing countries um, and their residents, of course, while nearly 50% of the um, impacts of climate change or like the contribu like contributions to climate change come from developed countries, on the other hand. So we're seeing disproportionately that um, developing countries are facing a much greater burden, even though they're not contributing as much. And furthermore, as I kind of uh, mentioned, developing countries often don't have the same capacity and resources to recover from climate change effects or natural disasters. Um, an example is Bangladesh, for example, which is a low-lying country in South Asia, which faces immense harm from climate change, despite being a very small contributor to the issue, mainly due to the low elevation, a large number of impoverished rice and fish farmers who work near coastal areas. These people are all increasingly at risk. And their water has also become deeply salinated because ocean levels have risen and contaminated the freshwater sources they have. So obviously without um, you know, enough water, like that creates a whole other level of burden on them. And they aren't able to rise out of that because they can't afford to change their water source, for example, or they can't afford to find new livelihoods because that's kind of the only source of income for them. Now, an interesting point to note is that many fault developing countries for issues like overpopulation, for example, or now increased industrialization as reasons for the increasing climate burden. But obviously, they fail to realize that the climate burden is actually more deeply leaning on developed countries. And for example, this is one that I thought was really interesting, approximately one child's consumption in Canada is equivalent to about six to seven children in a developing country. So we often say, you know, they're having so many children, which increases the burden, you know, we're overpopulating. And though those things are true to an extent, we 
also don't see the level of consumption and how that affects us. So having one child in Canada, for example, could have a much greater impact than somebody in India having five children. And so I think that's a really interesting thing to consider. And also, developing countries often increase the environmental burden on developing countries. For example, this was, I always think about how crazy this is. Canada truly just like sent its garbage yeah. all the way over to the Philippines and said, you know what, this is like recycling material, which it was not, and said, you know what, discard that waste. And now the environmental footprint is looking worse on the Philippines instead of Canada. And we're just kind of like, oh, well, our problem is gone, you know? And this is not like an unusual thing. Like developed countries often, whether it be through economic means or just like Sorry, quite literally as they did in Canada. I'm that disgusting. <laughs> quite literally as they did in Canada. Um, they can fully... He's like, how just... dare Canadians send their garbage they can across fully, the ocean? Yeah, they can just fully like increase the economic... Or sorry, the environmental footprint that is seen. So that's kind of yeah. crazy. And I think it's an important thing to consider like when we look at these things. sweeping it under the rug, but like not really. Exactly. So these are kind of the two major problems. So that was environmental racism and then climate poverty. After looking at both of these um, important instances of how the environment and inequalities intersect... You may wonder, is there anything that's happening to reduce these issues or potential policies being instituted to stop these injustices? So there are a few different ways that these issues are being fought. In terms of environmental racism, particularly within Canada, there's currently a bill called C-230, which is being discussed and debated in Parliament right now that aims to address environmental racism and create a framework that deals with the root causes of the problem. In the U.S., there is an Environmental Justice Act being presented in the Senate aiming to rework structural injustices that further environmental racism, in particular, reorganizing and addressing the faults within the EPA. So the EPA is the... Um, the Environmental Protection Agency. And this is because, like, why they're targeting the EPA specifically is because the EPA has rejected about 90% of the complaints surrounding environmental racism over the past five years. 90% of complaints and their job is to, like, to environmental protect protection Literally, agency. exactly. Um, and this is even prior to Trump's nominations, or nominees, sorry, for the EPA, who obviously hold more skeptical views about environmental racism. So it shows how the EPA has not really made environmental racism a priority yet. Um, and so that's why, kind of, they're aiming to take action against them. Other similar political action is also being taken globally, though there are still a lot of areas to be addressed and there's still big disconnects that we see. In terms of climate poverty, there are efforts by the United Nations Environmental Program to address this issue, though as previously discussed, you know, we love to talk about the UN here. <laughs> there are issues with adherence to the UN's mandates, so the true impact of these policies remains to be seen. There are also many private organizations such as Mercy Corps who aim to work with impoverished communities to remove potential harms that are being caused by climate change, as well as looking into how we can reduce our overall environmental impacts sitting here in developed countries. Overall, though, there are still many avenues of action that are to be considered in terms of inequalities in the environment, and there's obviously still a lot of things to be done. Kind of on that note, um, here are just a few questions to kind of keep you curious and thinking about environmental inequality issues. So where should we prioritize environmental racism, before or after social, political, or economic reform? Will policy ever be enough to fix environmental racism, or will there have to be some greater mindset or paradigm shift within communities? And then also, how do we decrease the imbalance between climate change contributions and effects seen between developed and developing countries? And how do our own actions contribute to racially, economically, or socially charged environmental or, anti or, sorry, or climate change injustice? Thanks for tuning into this episode. Phone in next week to learn all about corporate social responsibility and the environment. Bye. Bye.